Please turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We will look together this morning at the first 13 verses. We'll take some backward glances to chapter 14. Uh, But we continue to press on and make our way through these uh, two chapters, chapters 14 and 15. And we're looking at these 13 verses. This um, This is rich and one thing that I would ask you to look for, as we've seen, alluded to, I hope pointed out sufficiently up to this point, I want you to notice how Paul glues these exhortations to Christ. How he glues these exhortations to the gospel. The gospel is here. So listen not only for the exhortation. But listen for the soil, the ground, out of which these exhortations grow. Christ in his gospel. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. What sweet words, Lord Jesus. And yet woven into these very sweet words is this this strong, strong admonition. Lord Jesus, if we don't have your grace, we are helpless before this. So come now to help us see and understand, open our hearts, overcome our defenses, our biases, our prejudices. And then enable us in some real way to give expression to the unity, the love of the brethren that Paul is after in these verses. To the praise 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and his great gospel. In his name do we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Richard uh, Rogers is a name that I suspect uh, some of you uh, know, a name with which you're familiar. Um, The name you may be familiar with uh, is not the person to whom I'm referring. Uh, The Richard Rogers with whom you are most likely familiar, R-O-D-G-E-R-S, teamed up with Lawrence Hart and Oscar Hammerstein, and, and he actually wrote music to over 900 songs, 43 different Broadway plays. That's not the Richard Rogers I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about a different Richard Rogers who was born in 1551, died in 1618. Richard Rogers was a Puritan, R-O-G-E-R-S. Puritan uh, is a name that still today has these uh, awful connotations associated with it. If you want a good book to correct your mistaken impressions of what it is to be a Puritan, pick up Leland Riken's book, Worldly Saints. Worldly Saints. Great read. And if you have a friend who is particularly disposed to dislike the Puritans, give the book to your friend. It's another Puritan, um, another Puritan who, who was a strong advocate, strong advocate, Puritan, strong advocate of marriage, sex, and family, as long as in that order. Oh, come on, chuckle with me. Now, the Richard Rogers I'm referring to was in a conversation with another man who said, Mr. Rogers, I like you and your company very well, but you are so precise. And Mr. Rogers, not Fred, but Richard, responded and said, Sir, I serve a precise God. I serve a precise God. What did Richard Rogers mean? I think what he meant sort of in essence is that things matter. Things matter. For the Christian, everything matters. Thinking matters. Living matters. And having my thinking and my living properly ordered, even even down to some fairly minute details, even with the kind of precision that the world finds awkward or peculiar or funny. Having my thinking and my living properly ordered, and at the deepest levels, having my affections, my desires, my longings properly ordered is what the Christian life is about. And the Christian life is all about moving in the direction of being Properly ordered, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind, yes, beginning with the mind, but you, you as Hebrew folks now, you understand that, that it's more than just an intellectual thing to be a Christian, that the mind is connected to the heart, and the mind and the heart are connected to the will, and these three aspects of who we are all move among one another. And so to be transformed by the renewing of the mind is to be transformed in the totality of your person, and it's to move in the direction of giving evidence of of what the will of God is across the whole of life, that which is good and acceptable and perfect down into the nitty-gritty details, the precise and specific places of the living of the Christian life. That's what Mr. Rogers was talking about. I serve a precise God. And that's what the Christian life is all about. But our culture is very different from that, isn't it? Our Christian, our, our culture isn't about what matters, except insofar as it matters to me. To me. Right? Me. Me generation. I'm at the center of everything. Remember the illustration I told about my oldest daughter when she was four? I don't know why he's crying. I have what I want. God and everything else exists for me. Right? So things only matter insofar as they touch me. But for the Christian, there's clearly something more going on than just me. And in these chapters, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul is unfolding and unpacking for us that something more. My brother or sister, my fellow Christian matters more than me. The unity of the church matters more than me. The beauty, integrity, authority, power of the gospel matters more than me. And ultimately, the praise of the God of the gospel, who by the power of the gospel, effects such a stunning unity between me and my brother, a brother who is very different from me, this all matters more than me. And that's where we are in this letter. There's wonderful doctrine in this letter to the Romans, but it leads somewhere, and it leads to practice. It leads to the kind of practice that the world actually longs for, longs to see, longs to smell, longs to taste, longs to have some encounter with. It leads to the kind of practice that results in the praise of God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Notice how this passage ends with praise and rejoicing and praise and rejoicing among Jew and Gentile. See, it goes someplace. It goes in the direction, does this doctrine in this letter, it goes to the level of practice such that God is praised by a people, a people for whom love of the brethren, unity in the church is more important 
than ethnic identity, Jew, personal preferences, habits, practices, and behaviors, Jew and Gentile. The effect of this gospel is a love that is not conditional, but is in fact the fruit of the operation of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it's different. And again, the end result of all of this is the praise, the honor, the worship of the God of grace. Now let's remember that chapters 14 and 15 hang together as a unit, and so this third sermon on this passage is really the third part of one sermon. It's one long sermon that's interrupted because of that thing. For this morning, let's do three things. Let's create three pegs and hang this sermon on these three pegs. Let's first think of lessons learned. And then second, there is another word for the strong. And third, there is another word for the weak. So lessons learned, another word to the strong, which is verses 1 through 7, and another word to the weak, which is verses 8 through 13. First, lessons learned. Here is the first lesson learned. The importance of context. I had a member say to me last week that she appreciated very much, she said this last week, she was referring to the sermon two weeks ago, she appreciated very much the rather long explanation in the sermon outlining the context in which to understand what Paul has in mind as he writes these particular chapters to these Romans in these churches in Rome. And the background, again, just really quickly, is simply that the gospel first came to Rome, most probably with Jews who had been in Jerusalem and had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Only this time when they went to celebrate Passover, the real Passover happened. And the real sacrificial lamb was offered as an atonement for the sins of his people. And following the offering of the true Paschal Lamb, the true Passover sacrifice, that Passover sacrifice was buried and on the third day raised again, and following his resurrection spent nearly six weeks talking with his disciples, interacting with his disciples, and following that, he was raised to the right hand of the Father, ascended to a place of power and glory where he continues to rule and reign as king over all things for his church to this day. And he'll stay there, ruling and reigning, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, until he has subdued every enemy, crushed every enemy under his feet. And when he does that, then he will deliver the perfected kingdom to his Father so that God may be praised and glorified as one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. And they were there on Pentecost Day, following the ascension. And they heard Peter preach. Acts 2 tells us that there were Jews in Jerusalem who were from Rome. And having heard the gospel, some of them were converted and they went back to Rome and they took the gospel with them. 
and taking the gospel back to Rome, churches began to spring up. And we know, I think you know, as you read the book of Acts, that there are Gentiles who are interested in this monotheistic religion because it offers the promise of hope and redemption and the restoration of all things. The wise men who came from the east to find the king are among those Gentile types who are looking for something better. And they were certainly there in Rome. And so these Jews bring the gospel back and churches begin to be birthed and churches begin to grow. And the churches probably were dominated by Jews, but there would have been some Gentiles mixed in. But then in 49 AD, Claudius, because of riots, severe, significant civil disturbances, the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. They had to leave. Among them, were people like Priscilla and Aquila, Prisca and Aquila, who were mentioned in chapter 16. But after a few years, long about the mid-50s, less than a decade later, but a significant time later, these Jews begin to migrate back to Rome and find their way to these churches, which are now most probably dominated no longer by Jews, but by Gentiles. And when these Jews come back, what do they bring? They bring their habits, they bring their practices, these things that they've been steeped in for all of these generations and centuries. Not all of them, but many of them. They come back to these churches now dominated by Gentiles and they're trying to figure out a way to work their way, if we can put it that way, back into the churches. And these Jews who continue to cling to dietary restrictions, who continue to honor specific days from the Jewish calendar, they are the weak. They are described, Paul describes them, as the weak in this passage. They have scruples. Their consciences are sensitive about foods and honoring specific days. And then the strong, among whom Paul counts himself, 15.1, We who are strong have an obligation to the weak. Paul counts himself among the strong. The strong are those whose consciences are no longer bound by these restrictions. Not because they're being careless or frivolous, but because they understand Christ to have given them permission to enjoy lobster at the beach and pork in Memphis. Jesus lifted the restriction in Acts chapter 10. And the same is true with drink. Paul mentions food and drink, and he mentions The observance of days. Christ fulfills all of those special days. Passover, Pentecost, First Fruits, Yom Kippur. So that's the context here. The weak are those whose consciences are still tied to certain laws and practices and habits. The strong are those who have been freed. Now at this point, let me just say this. As we read this, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I think it's kind of difficult for us to create categories that are exactly parallel to the categories that are reflected, that are in the background in chapter 15 and 14. I suggested a few things. One commentator said it's probably a bad idea to suggest specific 
analogs or analogies to these particular categories because in doing that, you may just create a disturbance. You may just cause a fight. So I'm not going to mention specifics. What I'm going to suggest is this, that rather than trying to figure out whether you're in the weak group or the strong group, whether the person next to you is in the weak or the strong group, get beyond the weak and the strong thing and embrace and understand these next lessons learned. The second lesson learned is that in each case, these are matters of conscience. These are matters of conscience. 14, 2 and 3, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. These are matters of conscience, friends. They don't strike at what we call the vitals of religion. There is a danger that they can. Lesson two, these are matters of conscience. But I spent quite a lot of time last week emphasizing the fact that you can cross a line with a matter of conscience. And this is the third lesson learned. You can cross the line with a matter of conscience, with a matter of preference, with a habit, touching just about any area of life. And the the line gets crossed in this way, and this is the third lesson learned. When the line is crossed, a particular attitude or behavior or practice becomes a condition that must be met in order for me to accept you as my brother. And that is a violation of the gospel. That is a violation of the gospel. Whether it's, whether it's ethnicity. Ethnicity, folks, has been And frankly, in too many places, still is a condition, if not explicitly stated at the level of practice, a condition that must be met in order for a person to be accepted into the group. And it's a violation of the gospel. I mean, if I could rant for just 15 seconds here, Paul's big concern, as we'll see later, is, and I've said it before, is to preach a gospel which destroys a dividing wall separating people ethnically, racially, culturally. Read Ephesians 2. That's what Ephesians 2 is about. Same thing can happen with habits and practices. I think last week I mentioned hair length and clothing in worship. See, I'm creating a fight just by mentioning these things. These things don't even get close to touching what we call the vitals of religion, the essence of the gospel. And when I require any of those things as a condition which must be met in order for me to have fellowship 
with you. I'm violating the gospel because the ground, the basis upon which God accepts you and I accept you is the same. The finished work of Christ plus nothing. Do you get that? That's critical. The basis upon which God accepts you and I accept you. The basis upon which God accepts me and you accept me is the same ground, the finished work of Christ, plus nothing. When we share Christ, we dare not divide over matters of conscience at the level of practice. We dare not. We do violence to the unity of the church and to the finished work of Christ and what Christ died to achieve. And that leads to the fourth lesson learned, which is that the problem, which seemed to be very much on the surface among the Christians in Rome, Rome, is simply how do we deal with each other as we have these differences? And the answer to that question, and again, Don't try to figure out who's weak, who's strong, which category you fit into. Just keep chapter 4, verse 3 before you. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. See, this is the thing. This is where we ended last week. Paul admonishing us and encouraging us that because my brother has been welcomed by Christ, received by Christ, I am in no position based upon preferences and habits and these other things. I am in no position either to dismiss or to judge. Pass judgment or consider of no account. Because Christ has welcomed him. And Paul says in in verse 12 of chapter 14 that each of us will give an account of himself to God. I mean, that's pretty pointed, isn't it? I mean, doesn't that... See how Paul is always fixing these exhortations to the reality of Christ? And what he envisions there is that I'm standing next to my brother who doesn't drink... Ah, there, I've done it again. Who doesn't eat, who doesn't observe a particular day. And I do do these certain things. And I've either judged or dismissed him, considered him of no account. And here we are standing side by side before Christ, who is our one master. And am I really going in the presence of Christ? Am I really going to insist that Jesus passed judgment on my brother because I think he should. That Jesus dismiss my brother because I think that he should. Am I really going to stand in the presence of our common master as his servants, but as brothers and maintain this attitude either of judgment or dismissiveness. 
know, your brother or your sister who knows Christ and loves Christ, who has genuinely come to faith in Christ, is to be built up in love, Paul says. Not be judged, not be dismissed. So those are the lessons learned up to this point. And then when we come to chapter 15, these first seven verses, there's an additional word to the strong. An additional word to the strong, and it's in verse 1. And again, it's followed by gospel rootedness, gospel realities. What is the word to the strong? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We who are strong. Now remember who the strong are. The strong are those whose consciences are not bound, not tied to, not sensitive to these particular issues that the brother has a sensitivity to or the sister. And so how am I to respond to this one? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. I love the ESV. I think it's a great translation. I think it's an unfortunate translation in this case because in the original, there's no preposition with, bear with the failings of the weak. That kind of language actually leaves you with a connotation that I'm just, I, the strong one, am just supposed to put up with you, endure you, tolerate you, until you get with the program. Which really creates, I mean, that can create a real attitude of superiority and inferiority, can it? But actually what the language is, is the language of bearing. I am to bear the failings of the weak. I'm to carry them. It's the same language that Paul uses. The commentators point this out. Again, that's why I I love what I get to do. I get to find stuff out that I can share with you on Sunday mornings. Commentators direct you to Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says, bear one another's burdens. Not bear with one another's burdens, not just put up with and tolerate one another's, but, but bear, come alongside, help to shoulder and carry. And that's the language that's used here. It's the idea of helping, of engaging, bearing the weaknesses, the frailties, the failings even of the weak. Sometimes I I love to use the illustration. I think this is a very, very helpful illustration that gets at this. The illustration of Israel leaving Egypt, leaving its bondage in Egypt and moving in the direction of the freedom of the promised land. And here's the point. The nation moved together. And the nation could only move as quickly as the weakest among them. No one was left behind. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Paul's getting at here. Here I am in a relation with somebody whom I find irritating because of some scruple. How am I to respond to this person? I'm to come alongside. I'm to come alongside lovingly, patiently, and actually getting under the load, helping to carry 
my brother or my sister. I'm not to be satisfied. If Look, if the gospel really and truly has set me free as it did Paul, Paul lived with all of those scruples. Paul lived with a sensitivity to foods. Paul honored those specific days. Paul was set free from being scrupulous about those foods in those days. Paul understood that the gospel liberates from the oppression of law. Right? You remember Romans 6 and 7, particularly Romans 7. The law is a nasty husband when sin is in the mix. But Christ comes as the better husband. Christ comes as the fulfillment of law and the husband who loves his wife, doesn't brutalize his wife with duty, 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 duty. It's crushing. What do I want for people whose consciences are overly scrupulous and restrictive? I want them to be free. So how do I get them free? Do I wag my finger at them and say, hurry up? Do I wag my finger and say, don't be like that? That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, you come alongside, you bear, and you are patient. And you understand that people move at different speeds, move at different rates. Grow in different ways. Get liberated according to different and unique and very personal schedules. It doesn't happen in somebody else's life the way it happened to you. And so you come alongside. There's actually a beautiful, beautiful expression of this. In Acts chapter 15, the first general assembly of the church, where this issue of Gentiles coming into the church was a real problem. And there were scrupulous Jews who were still coming out of their Judaism. And how did the church respond to this this complicated situation? When you look at verses 28 and 29 of Acts chapter 15, the letter that is sent by the apostles to the churches includes this very pastoral, pastoral wisdom. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. I get the sexual immorality thing, but does that mean I can't have a rare steak? Does that mean if I live in England and I go to a restaurant and I get the full English breakfast, I can't have blood pudding? No, no, you see, you see the apostles are being extraordinarily pastoral and they're recognizing that Jews are coming out of Judaism where these kinds of things were restricted. The consumption of blood was forgiven. No rare steaks and no blood pudding. And they're in effect saying to the apostles, to Paul and and Barnabas and the others, as they go back out into the Gentile world and into these churches where Jew and Gentile are together, they're just saying, be very, very 
sensitive and careful and bear with the weaknesses, the failings of those who are coming out of this. They're embracing Christ, but they're bringing the stuff with them. So bear with them. There are so many other illustrations of this. Paul having Timothy circumcised. Paul didn't believe that circumcision was necessary for inclusion, but he had Timothy circumcised because there were people who were sensitive to it. See, that's what the strong do. The strong are so free, get this, the strong are so free in the gospel that they will sacrifice their freedom for those who are not as free. I've been this person myself. I've been around people like this. I've been this person. The person who insists on having his freedom. The gospel gives me freedom to eat this, to drink this. Therefore, I will eat and I will drink. And you see what's happened? My freedom has actually become a prison. I'm imprisoned to my freedom. The strong one is free enough to lay aside his freedom or her freedom in the interest of the brother or sister in Christ whose conscience is not yet there. That's why those last verses of chapter 14 are so challenging, aren't they? Don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother or sister. Be more free than your freedom by sacrificing your freedom for the conscience of your brother or sister. That, it seems to me, is the word to the strong. And again, notice how Paul glues this exhortation to the gospel. Oh, to spend an hour just talking about this. He glues this exhortation to the gospel. Verse three, for Christ did not please himself. Christ did not please himself. Paul reminds us in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself of all of his privileges, all of his freedoms, all of his rights, and took the form of a servant for you. You see how Paul does this? This is not just stoicism. This is just not the ethic of the Stoics. Do the right thing. No, 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 no. This is us following Jesus. Jesus creates the path. He walks the path. Remember this. Jesus never calls you to anything that he hasn't first done himself. He walked this path. So free was Jesus that he laid aside his freedom for your sake. And not only that, and I find this striking, Paul cites this Old Testament passage, Psalm 117. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul puts these words 
in Jesus' mouth. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Who is the you? The you is the Father. Who reproached the Father? We did. We did. And our reproaches, every reproach, every venomous word, every venomous thought, every ungodly bit of thinking that ever issued from the depths of my soul, it all fell upon Christ so that I might be free. Christ took our reproaches upon himself, sacrificing his freedom for our sakes that we might be free. And then here's the word of the week, this last Little thing. It's gentle, but it's very direct, and this warrants another hour. So we're here till two. Here's this very gentle, very pastoral, but very direct word to the weak. Notice, notice the circumcised are in view in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. What's that all about? Well, very quickly, what that's all about is simply this. When Paul began the gospel, his discussion of the gospel, Romans chapter 1, he said that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And he's simply rehearsing that same line of reasoning here. Jesus comes to the lost sheep of Israel first before he goes to his other sheep, the sheep that he will gather from among the Gentiles from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. He comes as the servant of the circumcised, the Jews, before he goes to the Gentiles in fulfillment of what is promised in the Old Testament. Remember the basic architecture of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, promise, fulfillment. The Old Testament is promise. The prophets told us that Christ would come and he would come to this particular people. He would be birthed from this particular people. And so he comes to them first, but it doesn't end there. And this is what it seems to me Paul is doing. Now again, the distinction here is weak and strong, Jews who are still wrapped up in their distinctives. So you have to work, you have to work here to make the application. But these Jews who want to cling to their Jewishness and cling to their distinctiveness, Paul, in effect, is saying, it was never about you. It's always been about the Gentiles. And to prove it, this is fascinating, to prove his point, And to prove that that God's purpose and intent always has been to gather from Jew and Gentile, one people for himself, where all of these distinctives are obliterated. To prove the point, he quotes 2 Samuel 22, which is the history portion of the Old Testament Scriptures. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, which is the law. He quotes Psalm 117 in verse 11, and he quotes Isaiah the prophet in verse 12. 
from Isaiah 11.10. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying to his Jewish readers, I don't care where you go in the scriptures. Go to the prophets, go to the Psalms, go to the histories, go to the writings, go to the law, go anywhere you want, and this is what you will find. God's purpose has always been bigger than you. His purpose has always been the nations. The nations. And who is featured in verses 9 through 12? Gentiles, 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 Gentiles. Five times. The Gentiles will hope in you. The Gentiles will praise you. No matter where you go, it has been God's intent to gather into one a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, the Jew first and also the Greek. And so Paul, with a big exclamation mark, is saying, get on with it. Get on with being this loving, unified people who are unified because of Christ. Not these secondary, peripheral, and even tertiary, third-level matters. That is not what unites us. What unites us is Jesus Christ. And then there is this wonderful benediction. May the God of hope fill you, this loving, unified people, with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please be with us as a church as we walk through these days and weeks and months and grant us grace so to love each other, so to defer to one another, so to give preference to one another, that the world might be stunned, that we ourselves might be stunned by the power of your grace operative in our lives. This we ask in your name. Amen.